Uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross has written so beautifully about how we deal with the news of approaching death, with the, the grief and the coping with the death of a loved one. And she says that denial, the first of her five stages of grief, is actually a defense mechanism, that if you let the whole reality wash over you all at once, you might collapse because it's just too much. Hi, and welcome to season four of Habits Matter. I'm your host, Shreya C. Singh, founder and CEO of Harappa Education, an online learning institution where our mission is to power your world of work with good habits. As a podcast lover, I've always been thrilled to host my own show. But season four beats every high so far as we bring to you a super special set of episodes. Meet a group of trailblazing women social scientists, academics, and researchers who are shaping a world of work with pioneering, path-breaking ideas. We wanted to mark the run-up to Women's Day meaningfully, and we hope you agree that we've managed to do that. On today's show, meet author, strategist, and policy analyst Michelle Booker, who specializes in the world economy, crisis anticipation, and immigration. In 2016, Michelle authored the concept of Grey Rhino, an evocative metaphor for obvious risks that we ignore despite, and maybe even because of their size and likelihood. You could say that these events are the opposite to scholar Nicholas Taleb's Black Swan events, which are dangerous because they're hard to predict. In contrast, Grey Rhino events are even more ominous. They get ignored even as they stare us in the face. In this episode, we talk about why we ignore threats lurking right under our nose and what it takes to tame the beast. This conversation has fascinating ideas on how culture affects decision-making, how optimism shapes risk, and where creativity comes from. Welcome to Have This Matter, Michelle, and thank you so, so very much uh, for being on the show. It really does mean a lot to us, and we're very, very excited about this conversation with you. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm very excited too. Of course, you're so well known um, uh, f- for a lot of your work, but the Grey Rhino in particular has become sort of a defining um, body of work and, and a term that you've coined for us. Uh, you officially coined the term Grey Rhino at the World Economic Forum um, and in Davos in Switzerland. At least that's what internet research has told us. And please do let us know if that's correct. What inspired you to coin it? And Really tell us, what is a gray rhino event? So a gray rhino is the big, scary thing with a horn pointed straight at you. It's got a lot of weight, a lot of impact, a lot of danger. And it's coming at you and it's giving you a choice. And it's gray because uh, of the five rhino species, there's a black rhino and a white rhino. And the black one is actually gray and the white one is actually gray. So the colors seem to really drive home this metaphor of of how likely we are to miss the obvious thing that's right in front of us because nobody said gray until now. Of course, the image was of the thing right in front of you. Uh, Although as I developed the concept, the gray rhino can actually be anywhere. It can be right in front of you or it can be farther down the road. And that's actually part of the analytical framework that I developed. And of course, in January, 2013, at the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum is uh, is where I I gave a a Firestarter talk, a six minute talk, sort of introducing the concept uh, to the world. 
Great. So, so what I heard you say was you're alluding to the fact that the gray rhino event is both large in size and alluding to the size of the animal that we're speaking about, but also in a way tough to spot because of the differentiation of the color that you spoke about. So um, you can miss it even though it's so big. Is that sort of a, a simple explanation of it? My point was really we've got a choice that you need to be aware that you might ignore something but it's not inevitable. And we of course have an expression for the inevitable things that the elephant in the room, which is the big thing that's just standing there that by definition, nobody talks about. And I didn't wanna keep normalizing that. I didn't wanna say, hey, it's okay to not pay attention to, to it. I do wanna say it's okay to recognize that you missed something obvious because that's, that's human. And by recognizing that you are vulnerable to that, you actually become much more powerful. But if you pay closer attention, you're actually gonna make much better decisions. And particularly if you're in a competitive business environment, the other guys are gonna be ignoring this. So if you're the one who's paying attention, you're gonna be getting ahead. You spoke about the Greek debt crisis as being sort of a, um, a, a manifestation of the Grey Rhino event. Can you speak to us from history about a couple of other Grey Rhino events? I really intend for the gray rhino to be something that helps us to look ahead. Um, so rather than just looking at history, I'd like to use some examples that are forward looking and current. Uh, climate change is the very, very big one that, uh, that comes up over and over again. And it's a very good example of, yes, some people are ignoring it. They're outright denying it. But there are also a lot of people who are working hard to try to solve the problem. And so climate change is a wonderful living example of these two different types of people, the, the ones who see the gray rhinos and do something about it, the ones who have their hands clamped firmly over their ears and saying, la, 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 I don't want to hear about it. And you're slowly seeing some people move from the denial camp to the recognizing camp and from the recognizing camp to the doing something about it camp. I, you know, I wanted to understand if they're right under our nose or staring right ahead at us as, as a gray rhino might, why do we end up ignoring the huge threat that gray rhino events or trends could pose? And please help us understand what mental models, biases, and heuristics might be stopping the human brain from acknowledging these threats. So briefly, on the cognitive side of things, um, I like to describe some of it as what happens if you live next to a train. So I grew up in the Midwest in Texas, and it's really hard not to live within earshot of a train because there are so many trains going through everywhere, uh, not just in the, in the big cities. And when you hear that train going by all the time, you learn to block it out because if you got distracted by it every time it went by, you wouldn't sleep at night, you wouldn't get anything done. So some of these big chronic long-term problems you ignore as a defense mechanism so that you can get your daily life going so that you can deal with immediate urgent problems. Uh, but there's this, this sort of vicious cycle is that the more you ignore the long-term problems, the bigger they get and the more attention they take and the more they cost to fix. So this ignoring is really only good as a, a short-term solution and you need to figure out a way to short circuit it and step back and take some time 
to deal with the big problems that do get in the way of things uh, every day. Another part of this is, uh, is denial. Uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross has written so beautifully about how we deal with the news of approaching death, with the, the grief and the coping with the death of a loved one. And she says that denial, the first of her five stages of grief, is actually a defense mechanism, that if you let the whole reality wash over you all at once, you might collapse because it's just too much. So our brain is trained to let some of these things in a little bit at a time in sort of bites that we can handle. Um, and just like the living by a train phenomenon, if you ignore it for too long, then it becomes bigger and bigger and more dangerous. So again, you need to think about how your denial is helping you and then how you can gradually move to recognition in a way that is safer. So the group dynamics, uh, the, the biggest one that comes into play in gray rhino crises is, uh, is called groupthink, uh, for short. Um, very, very closely related is, is confirmation bias um, and uh, availability bias, bias. So in groupthink, you've got a bunch of people sitting together around a table and the, the first person to speak, which is often the most powerful person in the room, says, here's what I think. And then you go around the table and everybody else nods and it becomes harder and harder to say, hey, but what about this? What about that? What about this possible unintended side effect? What are we ignoring? That effect becomes stronger and stronger the more homogeneous the group is. And the third one, the perverse incentives, you look at politicians, particularly in democracies where you have a fixed term. Well, what you really want to do is come up with the things that have the greatest short-term benefit and ignore talking about problems and hope that if there is a problem, it happens to the next person once you're out of office. And you know, hopefully you've gone up to a higher office by then. And particularly in the United States and, and, um, and many other democracies, uh, people are more likely to celebrate elected officials for cleaning up a mess but they have a hard time with counterfactuals, the celebrating people who prevented a crisis from happening because it's just too complicated cognitively to deal with. Or you look at companies uh, where people get their, their annual bonuses, where analysts in the stock market look at quarterly earnings and they don't want bad news. So there's a lot of incentive for companies to just ignore the problems and move on ahead. This has become worse because people are spending less and less time at the same company. So if a problem happens, well, hey, they've probably got another better job down the road. So there are a lot of incentives there that encourage people to ignore the problems and the long-term costs are quite huge. You know, there's so many fascinating deep dives into so much of what you've said, but I'm going to pick three um, and focus on those. One, I think what you're trying to say, and please tell me if I've got this correctly, that it's in the beginning of a, as, as a threat, it's possibly an evolutionary sort of response of survival, right? That you don't, and of optimism, then things will get better and therefore you might not focus on it because you can't focus on every event. Um, so I'd love to understand what you think from a, mental model perspective, how does optimism, um, you know, trade off and play with uh, with recognizing great events? 
Those are such great questions. Um, on optimism, I think there are really two things. One is sort of a negative and one is sort of a positive. Uh, there's something called the optimism bias, which is very, very close to uh, the confirmation bias, um, is that we're more likely to pay attention to and, and validate information that presents a rosier scenario. The other way that optimism plays in is it has to do with the shift between two phases of a, a gray rhino event. Um, and that's uh, in the second and third phases, the first being denial, the second is muddling. And that's where you say, hey, I know the problem, but here are a thousand reasons why we can't do anything about it. And, and which is essentially a very pessimistic point of view. When you switch to the third stage, uh, which is what I call diagnosing, uh, that's when you're, you do a mindset shift from this, here's why we can't fix it, to what does it take to fix the problem? What resources? Who do we need on board to get there? And how do we make this work? The second, which is really the focus that we have at Habits Matter as well as at Harappa, is really helping professionals. And this is such a um, uh, this is so foundational to problem solving, to creativity, to innovation, to learnability. And love to get your thoughts on what impact it has on on the on problem solving. You know, when I when I when I used to run a, a nonprofit think tank, we'd put out grant proposals for some of the projects we had. And one of the first questions was always, okay, what's the problem you're trying to, to solve? Which draws very much on human-centered design thinking, which draws very much on what venture capitalists wanna see at the top of, of your pitch for, you know, for your startup. It's what's the problem you're trying to solve? And that really is very similar to the question that I ask people to ask themselves in their sort of gray rhino training process which is what's the gray rhino? What's the big thing coming at you that hasn't been solved properly? You you touched upon groupthink, which of course, and I think we've talked about that earlier in this show particularly. Um, third question, how does collaboration and this collective silence of complicity, I think that groups have work in fostering more gray rhino responses and what clues does one watch out for beyond sort of a homogeneity of the members of a group um, that you know for sure that this group you're more worried about um, ignoring gray rhino threats? There's been some very interesting work around how you improve group, group, group dynamics. And one of those involves, of course, diversity. And diversity gets talked about very often in terms of uh, you know ethnic or demographic or gender, but it also really should include point of view. And a lot of work I've been doing recently is actually on risk attitudes, uh, on how you see the gray rhino in front of you, on how people in your group see the gray rhinos in front of you. If you've done any work on India, we'd obviously be very interested to find out how you think that culture and this concept plays out here or in other maybe more traditional Asian societies. Because my sense would have been that in a in civil in in societies and in democracies where there is great freedom of press, there is a focus on individual freedom, people would be better positioned to be able to voice uncomfortable truths. And if that's not happening in, in some of the more developed Western democracies, 
what are the challenges for other emerging democracies or other systems of governance? Some of the research on risk preferences is very interesting uh, in that collectivist cultures uh, are in some ways more comfortable with certain risks because they know there's more of a safety net. You know, they're, they're more, people are more likely to step up and help someone else out, uh, but they also know that someone else is there for them. Now, of course, this, this doesn't always play out in every single situation, and sometimes there are exceptions that prove the rule. Um, but one of the de de defining factors in whether you take a risk or not is whether you do feel there's a safety net, whether you do feel your government is capable of taking the decisions and taking the actions that need to happen to keep something from spiraling out of control. And uh, I've also seen some research about individualist societies paradoxically having individuals who feel less of a sense of power or agency than some collectivist cultures which is not what you would think, but it makes sense in America right now. You see a lot of the, you know, the Trump supporters or the, you know, the, the hard right populist groups coming out and being the loudest, being the most aggressive about, for example, not wearing masks, um, because that's something they can control. They feel like they don't have control. They don't necessarily have a voice. It doesn't mean they're less afraid of the pandemic than other people are. Uh, but they're doing what they feel they can control, even if that's something that is negative and actually puts them in more danger. So I think that we really could use a lot deeper look into some of the differences between individualist and collectivist societies, and also into some of the incentives that are embedded in political systems. Um, you know, in China, for example, it's not like they can just you know, keep kicking, kicking the can down the road and expecting, you know, the next people to pick it up. That there's, because they're not waiting for someone else to come in in two years or four years, there's a certain sense of accountability there that paradoxically democracies don't necessarily have. Um, so I think that, that we're thinking in a lot of very obsolete ways about different kinds of governments, different kinds of, of cultures, and as we've seen with the pandemic, some democracies have done very well and some have done really terribly. Some authoritarian governments have done well, some have done terribly. So it's not even the right yardstick. I know you um, uh, you don't uh, like the comparison between the gray rhino or sort of the juxtaposition of the gray rhino and black swan in the context of COVID, but COVID is the elephant in the room um, really for all our uh, listeners as well. And what is it, according to you, um, if at all, either of these two? Well, the, the way I usually describe the difference between the gray rhino, the black swan, and the elephant in the room is that the elephant in the room is st static. It just stands there. And people assume that there won't really be any consequences for ignoring it. And um, it's, it's just, it's a, it's a, concept that really normalizes doing nothing. And the black swan in its own way also normalizes doing nothing because the idea is that you can't see something, you can't predict it. Things are so improbable, unforeseeable, unimaginable that 
it's very hard to apply that in a forward-looking way. So in contrast to both of those, the gray rhino is something that you can see, that you can do something about, and that you should hold people accountable for when they don't pay attention to it. It doesn't normalize doing nothing and saying, saying nothing. And it's something we should be looking ahead for all of the time, that that should be an ongoing habit. It's a healthy habit that encourages innovation, better decision-making, and will leave us all off, all better off at the end. And in that sense, I, I think this pandemic as well has given us choices, whether it's test, trace, mask, whether it's vaccination, where you have to take accountability, make decisions, communicate that message. And so you're not powerless in the face of this, uh, this virus. It's true. It's true. And, and really, the gray rhino is intended to empower people. I always tell people, you've got three choices. You can stand there and you can get trampled. You can step out of the way and you don't get trampled. It might mean that other people get trampled. Or you can hop on the back of the rhino and use that strength for something good. What are the gray rhino threats that we face in our personal life, whether it is relationships and or other things that we can think about? And lastly, and given that we're all educators at heart and that's sort of, you know, life mission for so many of us, what role does education have and formal systems of education or institutions like ours uh, have in mitigating these risks? And what should we be constantly teaching learners in our custody? I don't know if you've heard the 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 new release by uh, BTS, the, the Korean band. They've got a song called Blue and Gray about depression, uh, particulars related to the pandemic, but they talk about depression as a gray rhino that's coming at you. And I've really explored a lot of these because it is so relevant in personal lives. And so it is very, very applicable to personal lives. And then as far as education, um, I think that people people need to learn earlier on that it's okay to recognize that you're vulnerable and that by recognizing it, it's a strength and that there are things that you can do that are healthy. Uh, thinking about your decision-making system, thinking about paying extra attention to the things that you know you want to ignore, thinking about the incentives in your life that might be pushing you to make one decision over another decision instead of the decision that's right for you. Uh, so all of these things you might call soft skills are actually essential uh, to your personal life, but also to, to societies, to businesses and organizations, and uh, really to life in general. There's this feedback loop between the individual decisions you make and your company's decisions and your government's decisions and everyone's on the planet and they all work together. Thank you so much. And on sort of that rousing message of individual agency that we have about um, being able to change and, and connect our own selves to, you know, our teams, our societies and our countries at large. Thank you so very much, Michelle. What a fascinating conversation and can't wait to um, read the new book as well. And thank you very much again for being on Habits Matter. Habits Matter is a show brought to you by Harappa Education. This episode was scripted, produced, and managed by Nitin Shamsuddin and Soumya Bahuguna under the editorial direction of Seema Chaudhary. 
Shout out to Madhva, a super talented audio engineer and a brilliant design team for us snazzy creators. Follow Habits Matter on Instagram and Harappa Education on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook.